You're listening to Toronto's number one real estate podcast, powered by Watson Estates. The most successful local real estate investing starts right here, right now. Here's your host, broker, investor, and social media influencer, Bradley Watson. Good morning, investors. Bradley here from Watson Estates, and I'm thrilled you could join us this Tuesday morning on Toronto's number one real estate podcast. We are number one on Google Podcasts, and as usual, we're going to continue talking about what's happening on a daily basis in the real estate market here in Toronto. And for any of you that are just kind of joining us for the first time, welcome. Welcome to our little family here where we kind of discuss what the news articles are coming out on a daily basis. And you know what? I am generally optimistic. And today what I wanted to do is maybe highlight some of the not so optimistic to keep it on the positive side. You know, even the negative, I got to keep on the positive. The not so optimistic information coming out of our real estate market because we all need a little bit of negativity in our life right now, right? At least that's my thinking. We all have that one friend that we keep around because they're negative and they pull us down. That's part of motivational speaking, isn't it? All right, guys. So what we want to do today is I want to share with you a few things. I want to talk about will we see negative prices year over year? You've seen some other articles, which we will reference in here as well in our podcast today. But the question is, is will we end positive or negative and by how much? This is the million dollar question in our industry. Then we're going to talk about how far did home sales drop in April? We got dragged through the mud, especially during the first half of April. So what does that look like today? And then what is this? I like this perspective. Point to Homes actually did a survey among realtors and they asked them what they think will happen in 12 months. And so I want to share the results of that with you as well. So let's start talking about whether we will see negative prices year over year. So this comes out of an article from CIBC. So we've heard from so many people now. We've heard from RBC. We've heard from TD, and TD painted this really good picture. We've seen we've seen information coming out from the Toronto Real Estate Board, which I'm excited. There's going to be more stats on that this week, any day now, actually. But now we also have information from CIBC, and CIBC is a special one because of one little fellow whose name is Benjamin Tall. And why is this guy important? Well, he is a CIBC economist and he is a very frequent speaker at the Toronto Real Estate Board. Feels like every single year he's the keynote when we go to RealtorQuest and when I have my local brokerage conferences for the, the spring kickoffs, he's always the guy talking. And so he has a very loud voice amongst realtors across the GTA. So here's the article. A recent report from CIBC economist Benjamin Tall and Catherine Judge suggests that the effects of COVID-19 on Canadian home prices won't be fully felt until 2021. The report comes at a time when provinces are beginning to allow the gradual reopening of the economy. We'll kind of talk about that in a minute. Maybe not a minute. Later in the podcast, but we'll get there. Though Tall and Judge contend that their, quote, working assumption is that a flattening of the virus curve will not be a green light to go back to normal. So this is an interesting point. They don't think that because the economy opens that that's going to trigger a, co a total fix, if you will. We're going to hear a very different message from realtors. And so when you get Benjamin talking, which he actually is scheduled to speak, by the way, in the next couple of months, I've already got it in my calendar to have him talking to us. So as this kind of conflict happens, who's going to come out on top? Ultimately, I'd like to listen to The Economist, and if this is The Economist that's speaking, maybe it might change the impression of the realtors, which we'll hear what they're thinking 
shortly. Based on the market's recent stagnation, the likelihood of a return to normal taking place in a recession and a delay in housing completions and new housing starts, the report suggests the real estate market will not escape the same economic volatility the rest of the world is facing. So just, they don't actually mention this article, but they have a chart. And so I'm going to kind of explain to you what I'm seeing. So they're actually showing housing completions in Canada are down from 18 to 19 actually was down. And then to 2020 is down quite significantly. It looks like probably a maybe 40% drop. And then it jumps up again slightly, not to full recovery in 2021. And then we also have housing completions. And on the Toronto side, we see that that drops from 2019 to 2020 by looks like about a third, maybe just less of a third, 25%-ish. And then in 2021, it jumps back up about halfway back up to its housing completion. So they don't mention the article, but I wanted to share with you that their predictions is a strained housing completions. Quote, look for large swings in both demand and supply here. By 2021, as the economics of housing return to fundamentals, we expect an array of factors to result in a weaker market with some downturn pressure on prices. Demand will be reduced by a weak labor market and weaker investment activity. Four sales will add to supply and probably outweigh the offsetting impact of reduced supply of new units. Overall, as the fog clears, we expect to see average prices 5 to 10% lower relative to 2019 levels with high cost units in the high rise segment of the market seeing the most notable price declines. Okay, a couple big things here. First thing to think about is if we do have a decline in new housing starts, that impacts supply, especially long-term supply, right? Now, what we're talking about here isn't long-term. We're talking in the next year or two. So in the short term, it won't fix it. That's kind of what that point is saying because we have this decrease in people going out and spending money. And so they're net saying an average price declines of 5 to 10% depending on where you are. And they're also mentioning, they didn't get into any details of housing segments yet. I don't know if they do down in this article. We'll find out. If not, I'll tell you kind of what's going on. But they do notice that there is a noteworthy price declines in the high rise segment. So that's in the condominiums, right? So they kind of mention that here a little bit without statistics. So before I kind of move on, I've, if you guys listened to our podcast yesterday, I mentioned there was an individual who I can confirm now is a guy and their title on YouTube is The Truth. And they had mentioned the possibility of foreclosures or distress sales or power of sales as we call them in Canada. And so I asked to elaborate, where's the opportunity in that? Because if there is, I wanna hear it as well because this is where we're gonna get a good buying opportunity for my clients and for myself. And so he's finally come back with an answer. So I wanna share with you because it kind of ties into this. He says, the reason why I think there's a good chance of many quote distressed or power of sale coming into the market in the future is because the average Canadian is up to their ears in consumer debt. Couple that with a likelihood that many businesses are realizing that many of their workers who are now quote working from home will no longer be needed because the business is trying to recoup their losses and exercise efficiencies. Those people, and he has in brackets, two of my neighbors are facing a near future hardship. So the argument here from the prominent argument to that question was the reason for foreclosures is the consumer debt levels, right? And we've kind of talked about this in the past, so I won't get into it too much, but I do see that there has to be a differentiator between what is consumer debt, right? Which is kind of what he's mentioning here, which is like credit card debt, high, like no assets behind it, just debt, excuse me, that are being paid off over time. And so I wouldn't categorize mortgage debt, but I'm happy he kind of separated here to consumer debt. But yes, there is definitely super high consumer debt in Canada. There is no mystery of that. We've had high consumer debt for the longest time. And why I think this fits perfectly is because this article kind of goes on to talk about that a little bit when it talks about 
let me move along here. CIBC foreclosure comes just days after the TD release. Meanwhile, we're looking forward. So you know what? I'm going to actually dive into that a little bit myself because this article here doesn't mention it. But why I wanted to put it here, I'm just kind of looking at my notes here, is because this is a argument in favor of declining prices, right? If they're going to argue 5 to 10%, then potentially we could see homes coming on the market in droves. People putting them on to try and recoup as the truth said here, recoup their losses. And if they're facing near future hardship. Now, I do think that the spending, the 2000, personally, I think the emergency benefits spending and the open top, meaning the unlimited amount of spending that's put behind all of this to keep things afloat are going to save the day. That's my, that's my personal opinion and thought on this. I look at it much like the economy in the States, which is why we kind of talked about that yesterday. When, when spending is without limit, you can, you're not fixing the economy, but you're pushing the issue down the road. And so in an environment right now where everybody is spending money, conservative and liberal, to save the day, the question is, is even if we did find ourselves in a poor economy, will spending save the day? And I think so far it has, and I think it will continue to. If they pull the plug on the emergency benefit and in supporting workers and people are losing their jobs without pay and, and everything gets shut off then I would agree, right? We would see financial hardship. We would see challenges on an individual basis leading to an upswing, upswing in number of listings, which would obviously lead to price depreciation. depreciation. Oh my goodness. All right, <laughs> moving on. So I want to highlight, this article did that TD, without going into much detail, go back and listen. There's actually, a, the podcast we did was mentioning a increase in 7.8%. So it's easily found a few episodes ago. And they said, TD implied that Toronto could see an increase of 7.8%. So even in the banks, from the advice of their economists, are ranging from 7.8%, which was the high side, by the way. That wasn't like a guarantee. They had a range as well. But it could go up to 7.8%. And then here we have it could go down 10%. That's a 20% fluctuation. And so it calls into question anybody's numbers. And do you guys really know what's going to happen? And in both cases, they pretty much say, we don't right? Like this is all speculating at this point. And so it comes back down to us as investors to identify what do we think is going to happen? Do we think things are going to continue to go down? Do we think they're going to go up? And you know what? A lot of investors have just pulled themselves off altogether and are sitting on the sidelines. And you as an investor need to make that decision for yourself as well, what you're going to do. And I've got some that are sitting and I've got some that are spending. Tal and Judge, meanwhile, paint a market with very little to look forward to over the coming months. However, they do note that the housing market will begin the crisis on solid footing based on recent annual average home price double-digit growth. This is true, right? We've seen a strong market before. Quote, months of supply of units was at a post-recession low in February. Okay, right? So this is the strength of what we had. The number of transactions in home price of GTA both took significant hits in the first half of April. So I wish they spent more time here, but they didn't. If you guys have kind of been trekking with us the last week or so about podcasting, in our podcast, I've been talking about whether the news that comes out post-April, so now what the news coming out now will be showing a picture of a good start to April, or sorry, a rough start to April and a good second half to April. And in this article, they don't, right? In this article, they just say it was bad in the first half, but there's no kind of mention of the second half. And so at least as this, if, if you kind of want it to be on the hush, hush and hush or whatever, down and out, quiet and whatever, however, the whatever the analogy is for that, if you want this to be silent news, 
then this is good news for you because they're not actually pointing to the second half of April, but we will because we're not going to leave it there. But we're going to move on into our next article in just a second. In the coming few quarters, housing activity will dance to the volatile tune of economic activity. During that period, we expect continued reduced levels of activity and an unreliable and volatile price mechanism. In the immediate period following the introduction of a vaccine and as we enter the recessionary recovery period, we see the functionality of the housing market return to normal at a lower level of activity relative to pre-crisis trend. A little bit of a heads up, when we're going to talk about what realtors are saying, they actually are not saying that. They're actually saying that within 12 months, 80% of them think that it will rebound. So a little bit of a discrepancy there on who's kind of standing stronger on their figures. And at the same time, in that same comment, just in dialogue with the truth, what he had said was pre-COVID, Canada is a choice country for people to come and live work for various reasons, IT industry, safety, cost of property in relation to other countries, healthcare. I would also add dollar, right? We had, we've... We, if we see a weaker dollar relative to other countries, which we did for a little while there. Therefore, huge immigration numbers. Post-COVID, what has changed, if anything, in terms of immigration and what it, is what he's asking and why is housing affected? So this came out of a thing I mentioned yesterday about immigration. We were talking about that it was, I, I agree, it's a good argument, right? If immigration is severely impacted, it's such a vast growth, it's such a huge impact on our marketplace because I think what we were seeing yesterday was 80% of our growth comes from immigration. So if you shut off that tap, what happens? The growth stops and what happens all around? So to kind of answer this question, I, I want to segue as well is I agree. First of all, I agree. And what do I think is affected? And here's one part that this article brings up there. There's an effect and that is in the rental market. It's a very good point due to a combination of the aforesaid slowdown in housing completions and new starts and the effect COVID-19 and its subsequent health restrictions will have on new immigrants and NPRs, non-permanent residents in Canada. The rental market is likely to see its own downturn. This is interesting. Not a lot of people talk about the rental market. Actually, I'll be honest with you. This is the first time I'm hearing about the rental market. I've, I've heard about like a little bit, a little bit. No, nobody giving direct advice on the rental market, which is why I've kind of been trying to fill it with what I'm experiencing with my clients. But now we are hearing something. They actually have figures here, which is very interesting. New immigrants and NPRs make up a significant portion of rental demand each year. And with borders currently closed, this could cause a drastic effect on the number of renters across the country. Very interesting, right? When people come and they land, they're new landed immigrants, they're going to be looking for a rental space. And if they're not coming, they don't have that rental space. And that rental space needs to find someone else to fill it, which leads to an influx in the number of rentals. The report cites a number of factors to support a future rental reduction or slowdown in growth, including the conversion of short-term rentals into long-term rentals, which we've talked about, Airbnb switching over, reduced demand, which we're seeing here on the immigration side, and weaker investment activity, which comes from the government saying, you are not allowed to kick out your tenant, right? Things like that, or silly moves like rent control and all of these overly critical moves that are negatively affecting the landlords, positively affecting the tenant, yes, but it actually could lead to weaker investment activity, right? Ultimately, right? Not maybe not right away. I think we've actually been experiencing that a little bit, but generally speaking, people aren't going to want to invest if you're going to make it difficult for them to do business. This, despite the national rental vacancy rate having fallen to a 17 year low before the outbreak. So here's some of the figures, right? We were at a 17 year low before the outbreak and rental inflation reached a record breaking 5.2% annual increase. So there you go. So we were seeing increases in price, decreases in vacancy. Things didn't look so hot for the tenant, but all of a sudden, based on their pretty little charts they got here, 
that uh, kudos to whoever goes and makes these little charts. They work so hard on them. CMHC and CIBC did it. Somebody who's working from home probably did it. They show this pretty little uptick that's going to happen in 2020 and 2021 for rental vacancies changing, going changing course. Okay, so one side note, because I like to throw in better dwelling because I like the criticism that they have of our marketplace. And I love to shoot. I kind of mentioned the beginning of this podcast and I'm serious. Like we're sharing some of the rough stuff. So if you just want to sit on your, everything is good. I'm just going to sit pretty and I'm going to make a whole bunch of money and whatever type of high horse, then get off this podcast. Stop listening. Go away. This, this is when, when we're creating a framework for thought and we, if we're going to be strong in what we believe is going to happen in our marketplace, we need to see both sides. We need to have some level of critical thinking. And so this is important, guys. We need to hear this, okay? Canada's mortgage credit growth hits multi-year high, but it isn't what it seems, okay? So the news starts off kind of positive, but Better Dwelling does a good job of turning it on its head right away. Canadian mortgage growth credit growth is accelerating into the pandemic despite the lockdown. Okay. So what do they mean by that? I had to walk through this a couple times just to get a feel for what they're saying. Cause you don't usually call it mortgage credit growth. What they're talking about is the mortgage, right? The, the sizes of the mortgage, the amount of mortgage debt, for example, bank of Canada data shows outstanding mortgage credit reached a new high in March. The number also saw one of the highest rates of growth for the segment in years. This is pre-COVID-19, by the way, right? If we count up until halfway in March. Despite the optimistic sounding trend, right? Because it would seem like people are buying more homes and it's growing. That's the optimism. One needs to remember hundreds of thousands of Canadians deferred mortgage payments. The deferred payments mean some mortgage balances are rising due to a lack of payment, helping to boost growth before adding in new mortgages. So without kind of going too far into this, I just wanted to mentioned the article talks about how there's going to be there was deferrals in the second half of March there will continue to be deferrals into April and these things have led to an increase in the number of loan values right because if you're not paying it down they're going to stay higher and and it actually what it, what's kind of cool about this is they kind of talk about how later in the article there's even though we've had a decrease in the number of transactions right your transactions are down at the same time the number of mortgage deferrals are up up 44% from the month before in May from April. So we're seeing this this uptrend in the number of deferrals happening as things get tighter and tighter for people and they need to defer, which is kind of offsetting the non-applying of new mortgages. So new mortgages business isn't up, but because deferrals are up. And so they, the article kind of talks about that whole side. If you want to check it out, go to Better Dwelling. But it's a very interesting point, right? Like that we were on this uptick in the number of credit or loan amounts. And because of the deferrals, they're kind of being artificially kept up high. And anyways, I just thought it was an interesting point with all that said, but I want to kind of transition. I want to segue and talk about the Toronto area home sales hitting a record low in the number of sales. And I know we just spent a ton of time there, guys. So I'm going to kind of give you some of the Coles notes here on this second part of our podcast. So right here, I want to talk about number of sales changes is down 67%. This article, by the way, comes from move smartly, which I love their articles. They just, oh, they're so good. And what they talk about here is that compared to April of last year, sales were down 67%, but the new listings were also down 64%. That's a 3% margin guys. And if you've been tracking with us for a while, that is a gap that's been closing very quickly. Okay. So in other words, yes, you've seen price drops, but you've also now we've balanced back out new listing drop and people aren't throwing their home on the market. My clients aren't throwing a home on the market, right? Unless it's absolutely necessary, why would you? Because they're not going to sell, right? It doesn't it doesn't make any sense unless you're desperate, but I'm not seeing a whole lot of desperation on at least in my book of business. 
And so the months of inventory is kind of what they point to here. I am so excited, guys, for the Treb stats to come out this week because they are going to paint this picture for everybody. But for right now, you guys are getting a little bit of early insight. Months of inventory has increased to 3.4 or 3.58 months. Okay. In other words, if you put your home on the market, it's going to take the average home 3.58. Or it's actually the way they, they say it is it's going to take you 3.58 months to sell the home right? Like to sell all the homes, for example, if, so if you had a hundred homes, it's going to take you 3.58 to sell all the homes. It's as a percentage, right? And so that's the months of inventory. And the way you calculate that, by the way, is the number of active listings against the number of homes that sold over the past 30 days. So the indicator, the months of inventory indicator, you can kind of place where our market's at based on how high it is. So if you generally, if it's under four, it's considered to be a price tend to rise, right? Because you've got more demand than you've got supply. Got a supply crisis. If it's over six, then it goes the opposite. Prices go down because you've got less demand and more listings. If it floats from four to six, it's generally considered a balanced market. And so we actually, based on that definition, are still in a buyer's market, but we're nearing that balance. And with the non-change between number of sales and number of new listings, that number is not going to change a whole lot between now and when we come out the other side, unless something changes like the government shut off its taps, like we were talking about earlier, of funding and keeping the whole system afloat. And so where I kind of get off on all of this is hearing good news. Now, we've had some fluctuations in the number of new cases in Ontario, but Ford seems to have very optimistic news in that he said, quote, getting close to opening parks and more curbside pickup retail operations. So there seems to be forward momentum, and ultimately, he's the one that opens shop, not the health officials, but of course he's relying on their advice. All right, I know we're flying through these articles because I wanna get you all the good stuff. So one of the things I wanna talk about before we kind of wrap up here is what real estate agents are saying, okay? We, we know what the industry is saying, we know what the economists are saying, we know what credit or mortgage amounts are saying, we know what you know what stores are doing and, and rentals, we know all these things, but what does the realtor say? And you know what I think, because if you're following us along, I, I'm pretty open about my thinking on all of this, but I'm interested as well in hearing what my counterparts are thinking, right? And so in a lead up to COVID-19, real estate activity was showing promising year, people were doing good, yada, yada, yada. So our friends at Point to Homes, they reached out to real estate agents and professionals nationwide across Canada to learn how pandemic was affecting their business and what changes they anticipate. Here are some of their figures. According to their survey, 86% of agents who responded said they have noticed a significant drop in home buyer interest. What did I say? I think I said about 90%. So that's about actually lines up. So there, I said about 90% of my clients had stopped, 10% still do. So I have a few that are running around. So I kind of line up with these as well. 41% said that most of their clients stopped searching for a home. So they were forced to put everything on hold. Well, that's okay. So there you go. That's actually a big number. So most of their clients, so they actually stopped working, 41% of realtors. I did not fully stop working in all honesty, but some did, I guess. And they also have just 10% of our agents surveyed estimate that COVID-19 period would translate into business losses of less than 25%. So only 25% think they're not going to get a drop in 10%. I can see that, of course. Income has been severely impacted in our industry, just like yours. Those damn rich realtors that make all the money in the whole world and they are you know they can work from home and they need their cushy jobs. Yeah, they're, get, they're hurting too. And how long do you think it will take for your business to get back on track post-lockdown? Okay, so this is kind of where they got their stats. So under three months, 12%. These people are losing their mind. They think things are going to back on track in three months. They're oblivious. Anyways... Between three to six months, 39% think that. So 
and between seven to 12 months to 29. So all in, that's where they get their figures, right? They're thinking that there's going to be a hard rebound of 80% of agents expecting a return to 12 months normality of the market in 12 months. And so very interesting stuff. So what's more, 23% of respondents said they had become more dependent upon technology. And on the other hand, other agents expressed concern regarding market value, price drops, and real estate markets tipping into buyer territory. That was kind of what we were talking about on the months of inventory. I cannot see that happening just looking at the stats. But again, not everyone's looking at the stats. They're just looking at the the impression that they're getting from their clients. And there is fear. So I can see that that would become a concern. Price drops as well, right? Like if you're, you've already seen price drops, so the expectation of further price drops, it makes sense you're going to have a, a group of them that think that. So... I know we kind of flew through the second half of the podcast, but I don't want to keep you guys too long and I want to give you all the good information. Again, this week we have the Treb stats coming out. I'm so excited for it. This is all pre-Treb, guys. Also, tomorrow, Wednesday, we're going to have a morning podcast, but then I also have a kind of a monthly update video that's going to be coming out on our YouTube channel. That, by the way, just for, for you guys as well, that has been that was done two, three weeks ago. So obviously information has changed. That information is at the speed that I would have had my videos before all of this happened. But now because we're doing things daily, if you're able to, and you have been following our podcast, which many of our listeners have kind of switched over, you're going to hear the news far quicker and you're going to actually be able to, it's funny. You're going to hear the difference in what we're talking about there versus what we're talking about now. Now I do think it still applies, which is why we're still sharing it. I didn't want to pull it back because it still does apply, but the information in podcasts like this are far more detailed. And so that's why I'm so thankful you guys have been so receptive to coming and joining us every single morning. I'm getting up nice and early, which is great because on Tuesdays, for some of you who don't know, I spend daddy daughter date day with my daughter, Emily every Tuesday. And that's today. So I'm going to let you guys go now, go upstairs because I'm filming in my in my basement. That's actually where I do these things every morning. And I'm going to go make a two-year-old's day spending time with her. You've been listening to Google's podcast number one, real Toronto real estate podcast. Wow, that's that was butchered. And it's because we have a lot of fun. And I appreciate everything you guys are doing. And we're going to be back again bright and early tomorrow morning with more info on the Toronto real estate market. I'll see you then. Take care and keep it real.